Welcome, everybody. Spiritual Psychotherapy, Episode 9 of Season 2. I am very, very happy to be back. Last week was my birthday, and uh, I missed it very much. Even though I enjoyed my birthday, I really did miss seeing you guys and uh, getting the opportunity to speak about these things. Uh, so I want to begin with the story of Hanuman. Hanuman is within the uh, the Hindu tradition. Um, and so just as a, as a preface, you know, we're in shul and I'm sure a lot of people will ask this question of how are you teaching quote unquote Avodah Zarah and, and that whole stuff. And it's a valid question. And please don't report me to your local rabbis. Uh, but what I will say is I, I don't take these things literally. I take them all with a grain of salt and I see them as stories that carry a deeper message. The same way I would read any other story. And you don't have to read it as literal gods. You can read it instead as characters um, within a story. Uh, so I think it's very, very valuable when we see the wisdom in other traditions. Uh, so Ramdas, as you may know, uh, his name means servant of Ram. Das means servant, and Ram is one of those Hindu gods. Uh, and Han Hanuman is the name of the monkey humanoid type of god who is the servant of ram and thereby that means that ramdas actually himself was named after this being called hanuman within that tradition and there's something very special about these stories about this guy hanuman because he is a stand-in for you and me being the very humans uh, that we are with flesh and blood and you know, uh, uh, half human in a way and half divine, as we say in the eighth Mizmor of Tehillim. Right? When I gaze upon the heavens, the work of your fingers, O God, what is man that you should be mindful of him, the son of man that you should even care about him? And yet you made him little le less than the angels, little less than the divine, and you have crowned him with glory and majesty. Such is the human condition. Being a human being means being physical and at the same time striving for and aspiring towards and feeling one with at times this divine energy. And, and I want to see um, the if I can hopefully get across to you what I think are very, very valuable lessons from the story of, of, of Hanuman because I think it's actually, a, a, like many other things that we discuss in this class, a guide to meditation. And it's a guide to your ego about its relationship with the ineffable. So let's, let's start reading. Let's see what we make of it. Hanuman, the devoted servant of Ram. This is from Ram Das's book called Polishing the Mirror, How to Live from Your Spiritual Heart. Really a, a very beautiful book. So he says, the Indian epic of the Ramayana is a saga of God taking physical form as a warrior prince to guide humanity and strengthen our faith. It's a story of grace. The legend is that it was first written down in Sanskrit over 2,000 years ago by the poet sage Valmiki. A vernacular Hindi version by Tulsi Das is recited and performed in Hindu homes and temples and at annual festivals. It's like the Bible of North India. You can read the Ramayana on many levels as an actual historic event or a romantic tale of the battle between good and evil. 
You can also hear the characters as symbolic archetypes of sacred and secular forces, the soul and the ego, the truth of dharma and the illusion of desire, all of which vie within each of us. It is a multi-level work of living spirit that stirs our impulses towards divinity. Uh, one of the main characters in the Ramayana is the monkey god Hanuman, who is the perfect servant and great devotee of Ram, God in the human form of a prince. Hanuman represents our simian lower nature, right? Our monkey-like lower nature in service of the highest self, capital S. Hanuman says to Ram, when I don't know who I am, I serve you. When I know who I am, you and I are one. So that's just a preamble to the story itself. So I think this is pretty awesome because it's hitting on all the stuff that we know, even within Judaism, this idea of the Yetzet Hatov and the Yetzet Hara, the good and evil inclinations within us, um, and this desire to serve, and yet having this animalistic base type of desire within us. And how do we balance these things? This is what we're setting up here. But I think this is pretty incredible. When I don't know who I am, I serve you. When I know who I am, you and I are one. Pretty profound stuff. Let's see what comes from that. So here's the story. Ram and his wife Sita and his brother Lakshman were banished to the forest for 14 years under extraordinary circumstances. You'll have to read the book if you want all the details. Sita, the perfect wife, who is also the soul and the earth mother, the Shakti or power of God, is stolen away, kidnapped by Ravana, a demon king who is the bad guy in the story. Ravana is full of ego and pride. He has 10 heads and every one of them is full of power. Ram, though he is God on earth, is distraught because he's also a husband. As a husband, he's bereft, though as God, he's not. Looking for Sita, Ram enlists the help of the bears and the monkeys, who are rather human characters too. The chief monkey to help him is Hanuman. They search for Sita and finally ascertain that she has been taken by Ravana to the island of Sri Lanka, which used to be called uh, Kailan, off the southern coast of India. So they hear now that the wife of Ram, right? So you could think about what this means in terms of your ego. It's this ultimate epic feat that your ego is trying to, to accomplish, you're trying to save God's wife. What does that mean to your ego? A few weeks ago, we discussed what does it mean when you have a mystical vision and the Mashiach walks in and the Mashiach hears that God cares about you and your ego and the Mashiach starts crying. What does that mean on a deep level? And I would say I would encourage you to, to take that same type of approach in terms of this story. What does it mean when your ego is setting off on such an epic journey. And the, the catch is that there's danger here because the wife of God is stolen away. How do you go on a hero's journey to save the wife of God? And we mentioned a couple of weeks ago, the hero's journey of saving your father. What does that mean? All of these are different, I think, archetypal stories for the way that the ego sometimes has to navigate very difficult but courageous tasks along its way. All right, so uh, Ram is now enlisting the help of Hanuman. There is an ocean between India and Sri Lanka, 
And when the monkeys and bears all get to the shore, they can't figure out how to get across the, to rescue Sita. They're discussing it among themselves, and each one has a reason why they can't jump across. Everybody else, Yani, is too afraid. Somebody has to jump the ocean. There's no time for anything else. Time is pressing. Finally, they turn to Hanuman, who is just sitting there kind of meekly. Hanuman, you haven't said anything. Now, Hanuman is under a curse because of some mischief he had gotten into when he was a young monkey and inadvertently disturbed a yogi. Right? So that's pretty funny. I think that kind of, you know, indicates to you that this very courageous part of yourself, this very probably masculine, courageous and daring, bold part of yourself has also gotten itself into tremendous trouble and mischief as a child. And yet it is the one that you must rely on when you need to do something of substance. Okay. So otherwise, he has all the power in the universe since he lives only to serve God. Right? So if not for this curse, because of the mischief that he had had, he has a tremendous potential. But he's cursed to have no self-consciousness of his own power. Meaning he, he has a tremendous amount of power, but he is not aware. Think of it again in terms of that part of yourself, what you call the Yetzir Hara, which actually is full of power. And as we say in Shema, You have to love God with your whole heart. Why did it say and not Why two bets? Ha-hachamim say you have to love God with your Yetzir Hatov and with your Yetzir Hara. Right, so, but he's cursed to have no self-consciousness of his own power, just as you or I really have no sense of our true inner power. One of his companions says, Hanuman, you have the power to leap the ocean. He says, oh, I do? Oh, yes, of course, I can jump over the ocean. At, sorry, all he kind of needed was somebody else to nudge him a little bit. At that point, he starts to grow in size from just a regular monkey into a huge, huge form. This is really just a symbol of the leap of faith that each of us has to make to have faith in ourselves and faith in the universe, faith in the flow of things to go beyond ourselves, right? So the ability to go beyond oneself is always what's required in the courage that's needed to have a, a good mystical experience. And when Moshe Rabbeinu is, we read in the Zohar a few weeks ago or a couple of months ago at this point, Moshe is in heaven. And the other angels are all pissed off. They say, God, you're letting Yelid Isha, the, the son of a woman, into our into your heavenly chamber where we angels are all here? And Moshe is dumbfounded. He doesn't know what to say. And God tells Moshe, grab onto my kiseha kavod and answer them. And Moshe does that and he's able to stay. And what we interpreted at the time is what does the Kisah Kavod represent in that story? It represents that which is greater than yourself. The mystical experience is always about relying on and noticing that which has always been there, which is much larger than yourself. And when you can ironically grab onto or cling to that, cling to the non-clinging of that which is larger than yourself, you will be the source of tremendous, tremendous power. Hanuman leaps across the ocean as Ram's messenger to locate Sita and reassure her that Ram has not forgotten her. Right? This idea of 
God has not forgotten you. God has not forgotten the damsel in distress. Sita, the perfect devotee of Ram, represents all devotees. Hanuman is serving God by reminding the devotee to have faith that God cannot possibly forget us. Right? And this idea of God not forgetting us, we just mentioned that. Same thing. When the Mashiach starts crying, he starts crying because it's the same exact thing. It's all mystical traditions are hitting on this idea of your individuality, your individual ego is yearning for God. It, it wants that divine closeness, right? So God cannot possibly forget us. William Buck's version of the Ramayana. Now we're going to quote directly from the Ramayana to see what happens in this story. In his mind, Hanuman had already crossed the sea and entered the demon city. He climbed one of the Malaya hills to, to get firm ground under his feet. He began to fill up with power. He grew very large and heavy, and his tread pressed down on the hill and crushed the caves of the serpents. Out from the underworld came the richly dressed Nagas, the serpent gods, bruised and hissing, their hoods spread wide. In their anger, they rolled on the ground with their tongues flaming. They spat fire and bit the rocks in passion. Their venom cracked the hill, and gleams of red metal and stone shone from within the earth. So this, this imagery of, of serpents, so common within these ancient stories, and I think there's a reason for that. They represent, possibly, all the desires that are coming about your feet, right? Whenever you're trying to aim and aspire for higher things, those very base desires are always threatening to divert you because they will addict your attention away from higher things very, very easily. But like Hanuman, you have the power of mindfulness in a way to resist that not through forcing let's see how he does it hanuman climbed higher right so that's what you need to do just keep climbing with smiles of amazement the heavenly uh gandharvas the astral musicians and their apsarasas rose half dressed from the hill into the sky and looked down to watch hanuman climbed up through their hillside parks where Gandharva's uh, swords and bright-colored robes were hung on trees, and golden wine cups and silver dishes were on the ground in fair shady gardens, hiding lovers' beds of lotus petals. Right, So I literally just described every type of very base human desire. But what I think is interesting is that these are astral musicians that are involved here. At this point in the mystical experience, things start to get very musical. And I'm glad Myers here to hear this, right? Because this is the 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 transition point almost is when you are able to get out of the storyline that you've been telling yourself this whole time. And I always think of this song: "Are we human or are we dancer?" by the Killers, right? And uh, you know, I I, I remember reading uh, Brian Greene's book a little bit about string theory and how it's possible that at the deepest, deepest, deepest level of all subatomic particles that maybe we are like these vibrating rubber band strings and that these different vibrations create the different types of quarks and uh, so on and so forth and in a way we're all vibrating strings which would mean we are literally musical so to me that just carries a really beautiful idea in it but so there's these gandharvas and Hanuman is, is climbing up and he's noticing along the way 
uh, swords, all right, so representing all this type of humanly power that you can have, bright colored robes, the best silk and linens, whatever you could possibly want. I love how in those days, like that was really like good clothing was like the biggest thing that these people could aspire for. Um, golden wine cups, you know, uh, who doesn't want a nice alcohol, uh, you know, dinner, uh, silver dishes, like the most beautiful uh, types of meals and lavish riches that you can have shady gardens lovers of course you have to have sex with involved in any type of really beautiful uh sensual experience in beds of lotus petals right so it's really anything you could ever want hanuman could stop here and enjoy and he would be he would be able to enjoy but his higher self continues calling him upwards so i was also just listening to ram das and he told you know Take it or leave it. But a lot of these mystics will talk about what's called Siddhi. You ever hear of Siddhi? Siddhi is this idea within like a lot of them. Welcome, Dr. Nasser, by the way. Um, we're talking about this interesting Hindu myth of, of Hanuman. And it as a, a metaphor for overcoming the ego or how the ego is able to go on a mystical experience. Uh, so what are Siddhi? Siddhi are when the mystics talk about, you know, transcending, going up layers and layers and levels and levels um they talk about along the way you start to have certain quote-unquote powers now are these powers existing on the realm where you and i exist or are they existing in their mystical experience as they're going to god who that's up for you for you to to decide but um they talk about these powers and you can be the god of wind for a thousand years and you could be the god of fire for two million years, and you can manipulate whatever it is for however long. But these are seen as distractions from the ultimate, which is merging and communion with God. So I think in a lot of ways, what Hanuman is going through here, these ascension of levels, is exactly that. It is um, these almost Siddhi that are calling him and, and tempting him and saying, hey, come Come into my little den here and let's uh, let's consort together. Let's have sex and wine and food and silk and clothing. And it's like Hanuman doesn't settle for that. Hanuman neared the summit. His feet squeezed water from the hill. Rivers tumbled down, rock slides rolled, bright, fresh, broken veins of gold sparkled. Tigers ran off and birds flew away. The trees' spirits fled and in their dens, the wild cats yelled in a frightful chorus like the cry of the mountain himself through the voice of all his animals. Hanuman stood on the hilltop. He held his breath and sucked in his stomach. He frisked his tail and raised it a little at the end. He bent his knees and swung back his arms and on one finger gleamed Rama's gold ring that he was taking to Sita. Then without pausing to think, he drew in his neck laid back his ears, and jumped. It was grand. It was the greatest leap ever taken. The speed of Hanuman's jump pulled blossoms and flowers into the air after him, and they fell like little stars on the waving treetops. The animals on the beach had never seen such a thing. They cheered Hanuman. Then the air burned from his passage. The red clouds flamed over the sky, and Hanuman was far out of sight of land. Right, so what's going on right now? This is when the ego finally lets go. 
finally, after however many perceived lifetimes and eons of years, the ego has let go and it is glorious. Absolutely glorious. That white monkey was like a comet, pushing the sky from his way and bumping clouds aside. The wind roared under his arms and was pushed down from his breast as he passed and made the ocean pitch and roll. Sea spray rose and steamed up the sun. Beneath Anuman as he went, the green salt water parted and he could see the whales and fishes like people surprised at home. The air around Hanuman became electric and sheets of light gathered and crackled blue and pale melon green and flickering orange and red. Halfway across to Lanka, the golden mountain, Mainaka lived on the ocean floor and from undersea he saw Hanuman coming and thought he would be tired. Rest a while, said Mainaka. Let me pay my ancient debt to your father, the wind. Forgive me. But I must not break my flight, said Hanuman. So even a glorious thing, even a chesed that's going to be done to him, Hanuman says, I have a mission and I'm not going to break my flight. What a glorious leap. A leap into the unknown, a leap way beyond Hanuman's capacity. Right? More than you thought you could do. Somehow, impossibly, you did what you couldn't possibly do. A leap way beyond who he thought he was. Your own leap, your leap into life, into death, into the next moment, into freedom, comes from giving up the model of who you think you are. Who are you? Are you a straight person? Are you a clown? Have you been laughing forever? Have you been sad long enough? Is it all very heavy and important? Or is it kind of light and playful? How does this round work for you? It's all wide open this time. It's all wide open. On Hanuman's return, after he found, he's found Sita and leapt back across the ocean, Ram praises and embraces him in a moment of divine affection. Right? So the return back to ego, almost at this point, right? After that mystical experience, you come back to yourself and it's like a celebration. Right? So he's... In a moment of divine affection, Anuman, ever the humble servant, responds, Save me, save me from the tentacles of egoism, my Lord. So Hanuman, aware now of the seemingly great feat that he's just accomplished, is coming back to himself and he starts to notice, he says, I do not want to return to being egotistical. I don't want to be egocentric anymore. And what does Ram say? Ram says, as long as men shall speak of you, you will live on earth. No one can equal you. Your heart is true. Your arms are strong. You have the energy to do anything. You have served me faithfully and done things for me that couldn't be done. It's nothing, said Hanuman. I am your friend, that's all. Hanuman is the connection between bhakti yoga, the yoga of devotion, and karma yoga, the yoga of action and selfless service. He can accomplish anything because the purity of his love for God, right? because of the purity of his love for God. When he repeats Ram's name, Hanuman remembers who he is. And when he does things in Ram's name, nothing can stand in his way. Serving as Hanuman serves is a way of making your entire life an offering. An act of devotion. 
For Hanuman, each action is an opportunity to place a flower at the feet of Ram, the beloved. Right? So every action that we do can be an action of devotion, can be an act of service. And we mentioned uh, a few weeks ago the sport of our love. It can be like a sport in anything and everything we do. Maharaji, right? This is Ram Das's guru now. Ram Das is going to give us some, some uh, wisdom from his own guru. Maharaji had, had us learn the Hanuman Chalisa, 40 verses in praise of Hanuman. The opening of the Hanuman Chalisa inspired the title of this book. Krishna Das, who has helped spread the Chalisa in the West, says, Chanting the Chalisa is a powerful way to enter into the flow of love and grace. In the Chalisa, we bow to the great beauty, strength, and devotion that Hanuman embodies. We also begin to bow to that place in ourselves. The Chalisa inspires us to make the mirror of our heart as clean as Hanuman's so that we can become aware of the great beauty and love that lives within us as our own true nature. And now finally, this last line of this chapter absolutely blew me away in a certain way because it allows me now when I meditate to have this entire thing in the breath. And here it is. Maharaji said, Hanuman is the breath of Ram. So you as human being in this body, in this receptacle, this body pod that you are, every time you breathe in, the breath in that moment, in a way, is like the conduit of God to human, Ram to Hanuman. And the breath work is so key here because it captures everything that this is about. That the breath captures your humanity, but at the same time, your ability to just let go and leap into that great unknown and daring so greatly, uh, you know, to, to overcome yourself by becoming part of that which is so much larger than yourself. Welcome, ID. I know this sounds... Uh, very strange if you didn't get the introduction here. Um, <laughs> like, but you know, to be honest, I'm, I'm not sure it's going to sound less strange when I give you a couple of, a couple of details. Um, it's not strange. I I, I feel like I, I I travel to another planet. Welcome to planet Mars, ID. That's what we're doing. <laughs> also known as uh, Sephardic Synagogue. <laughs> Listen, like, with the word. With the world the way it is today, we could use another planet somewhere. Yeah. <laughs> Let's go, Elon. Tell him come to this planet, see if it's uh, <laughs> habitable for normal life. Um, it's so funny that you talk about planet. That my guy Wayne Dyer, you know, my yeah. Doctor Dyer, he writes a book. One of his books was called "Gift from Icus," and mm. it was a planet. It was really his daughter's name, Sky, spelled backwards. Wow. I E Y K E S, right? And in this planet, you could go into rewind. You could correct your friend. You could do everything that you thought you ever wanted to do. And I, I guess it was a beautiful planet. So uh, when I read the book, it was sort of like I'm going somewhere else. So like I'm taking this trip to you to another planet tonight. <laughs> well, welcome. And to be honest, it's it's pretty similar this story because it's the story of this monkey god type of thing. It's really you know take it with a grain of salt, but it's this this monkey like creature who represents the human side of, of being a human being, um, or really the animal side of being a human being, who is able to take this great flight and save the wife of his master, who is a god in this story. And 
we were talking about what does that mean for the ego, you know, to do this very courageous act of saving the wife of God. What does that even mean in, in terms of the ego? And this idea of saving the damsel in distress and doing the, the very courageous act is something that each of us answer on our own through our own meditation, I think. And when you do that inward journey, you might find that the more you push yourself to be courageous and brave um, and take a leap into the, the unknown, into that which you, you didn't know you could possibly accomplish and do, when you, when you make that leap, you might just find that you're heroic in a way and that you are doing some unbelievable things. And eventually... You come back from that. And the key here is now to not be totally enveloped in your ego and say, hey, look how great I am. What a hero I am. What an amazing, you know, comet I was as I was making this great leap. And, you know, I think the the, the wisdom here is to remain somehow humble. And I think in a lot of ways, this idea of Hanuman is the breath of Ram keeps you humble because Every breath we take is so fragile, but it's also so new. And every time you take that breath in and that breath out, you, you can almost relive what this is like for part of your psyche to do something truly courageous. And there's one part of the story that's not in this chapter that I heard from one of Ram Dass's lectures that I really found very, very beautiful and very moving. And during that embrace, so right when, when, uh, when Hanuman comes back from this journey, and Ram is so proud of him. And Ram is trying to hug Hanuman. What does Hanuman start to do? He literally starts to push away from Ram with all his might. And he says to Ram, he says, I want to remain separate from you for all time. Because only then can I forever worship you. And he knows already. He already had said when I don't know who I am, I worship you. When I know who I am, I am one with you. He's well aware that if he lets go and allows Ram to gather him in, he'll join him. But, and yet, and yet, and yet, the act of serving God, the act of worship, is so beyond words beautiful and enjoyable and hana'a. That it's like, I, this is the only thing I ever want to do the rest of my life. We say in Mizmor Le David, what a beautiful Mizmor. Ronnie Bennon points out the, that it's all about 26. You know, there's 26 words in the beginning, 26 words at the end. The center words are ki imadi. And the ending of it is, right, because you are with me, God. And this is the, the, the right, the Lord is my shepherd. I shall not want, I don't you layeth me on green pastures and by still waters. And the ending of it is, I just want to dwell in the house of God for many, many, many days. And you can imagine yourself, you know, you can visit this part of your own psyche wearing just white clothing. And every day you wake up and you go into the Mishkan and you light the Ketoret and you light the Menorah and you eat from the Lechem Panim, and you sit and you meditate with God and you bring the Korbanot and that's worship in a way. 
such an intimate beauty and and love that emerges when you get that type of relationship with God. And the key, I think, is it's it's don't don't isolate it to that. Don't isolate it to only that. That's an overt and obvious way of of serving God. But the key here is do that everyday life. And it, there, it's possible to see whatever you're doing as somehow worshiping. So if you're just sitting on the train, just be sitting on the on the train and noticing. And then like today, I had one of my patients absolutely flipping out. Lost it. Absolutely lost. Very psychotic. You're suspecting somebody. They put her in the quiet room and they injected her with Haldol and Ativan. And it's terrible. They put you in this this fluorescently lit, crazy bright room with like rubber walls so you can't hurt yourself. And I'm just standing there in the room with her. And I'm telling her just, let's come back to the peace of this moment. And she it was un, she was so calm. And I don't think it was just the meds. You know, the meds eventually did kick in and she did sleep soon. But she was so at peace. And I shared this moment with her today, these moments of just absolute bliss. This was a, a person who was so psychotic. She went into the face of another patient and screamed at him, was about to tackle this guy because she thought he was laughing at her, which he wasn't. And and she went from that to just being absolute divash, total sweetness, just from sharing a moment with me. And I noticed the more I just... Took deep breaths and said, I told her, all that exists is this, this right now. And it was the highlight of my day. I don't know about her, Mikey. but it was the highlight of my day tomorrow. Yeah. Mike. How, yeah, how did, so so I'm 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 on the program of of my rabbi rabbi who years ago, how does it is it a lateral move? Rabbi Nachman said board their dude. Is that comparable <laughs> to what you're saying? Absolutely. Absolutely. I think when you're lucky enough to do it, that is like actual worship and service of God every single day. That's right, like right. exactly what we're talking about. And I right. wish, I hope, and I bless all of us that we should be zochet to have times in our life where we could do a meditation right. or hit or whatever it is. Right. But yeah, so so he says that yeah. that to set set a time. So it's funny about twenty years ago. When I walk, yeah. so you know where I live because you've been in my house so many times. When I walk from here to the shul, I walk through the schoolyard every morning. Uh, you know, the schoolyard's empty. So it's 7 o'clock, 6 30, 7 o'clock. I walk through the schoolyard rather than walking straight to the shul. And that schoolyard is my hit for they do. Oh, I love it. I love it. That's every morning, it's about five or six minutes. I walk through the schoolyard slow, and that's my hit for they do. I love it, man. You got it. You got that's the thing. It's the little moments that you would never have thought during your random day when you could just be with God. That's that's exactly what it's about. Yeah. And you know, it, you know what? So I wrote down here a couple of thoughts. One of them I wrote here, and it's ex basically what we're saying is when you're in that state of mind, you're not looking for anything. There, there's nothing you have to accomplish or do in order to be with God. Yeah, I mean, you're already with God. You're, no, that, you're with him. That's it. It's you and him. Exactly. The reason I see that you are walking slowly in the schoolyard is because God is already with you and you're already enjoying it. I That's know he's waiting for me there every morning. 
Exactly. No, legit. And and yeah. you're walking slowly because he's already accompanying you. There's no, you know, it is also it's like we always joke with my rabbi for, for decades that, you know, your eye in the forest, you know, you go and, and you know, and, and Rabbi Nachman, you go into the forest and scream and give to God. And, but this on that level is the schoolyard is peace of mind. There's no phone. Yes. There's no interaction. There's no people. There's nothing. There's you and God in the sky. That, isn't that ironic? The, one of the places it's going to be so rambunctious later in the day is the place of absolute. Yeah, no. Oh, that when I walk back from school, there's three thousand kids in the schoolyard from the from Gilhaja School, right? Yeah. When I walk back from school at eight thirty, whatever. Yeah. Precisely, and the 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 correlate that I want to make to your story is what I wrote here, which is you know. So there's a there's a famous Zen story that um, so one of the masters looks at the student. He says, "What's the reason you do zazen?" He says, well, I, which is sitting Zen, sitting meditation, sitting all day, Yanni meditating. And he says, what's the reason you do Zazen? He says, I do Zazen so that I can become a Buddha. So the master proceeds to pick up a brick from the ground and he starts to, to polish the brick with, with a cloth. And the student says, master, what are you doing? He says, oh, I'm polishing this, this brick until it becomes a mirror. And the student says, well, that'll never work. You know, you can polish that brick forever and ever, and it'll never become a mirror. And the master says to the student, and and the same way, through no amount of zazen will you ever become a Buddha. Wow. Well, there's no amount of polishing the mirror, quote unquote, that will ever make you into a Buddha. The, and the, the key here is the reason that they sit in that posture is because they know you are already the Buddha. And that's just how the Buddha sits. Right, but the game plan is not to be a Buddha. The game plan is to to, to capitalize on the system, no? What do you mean? <laughs> I mean, to, to, to go through the Zen, to go through all... It's like, in other words, like my thing, my my other gig from the Hitboard there too, is I told you the Japanese, the Igikai, the yeah, Wabasabi, yeah. like yeah. all that. In other words, finding happiness, you know, in the moment, or even switch, you know, all these things that we always talk about, me and you, in the world of shrink, <laughs> basically Maslow's self actualization, you know, yeah. you know, all these things are really corollaries. They're all a beautiful package of ways to enhance your mindset. No, absolutely. So, the, the only thing I'll say is that at the at when we are at that level of total peace, we realize there is nothing to accomplish. There's nothing more that needs to be done. Yani Shabbat. So I when you're on in Shabbat, there's nothing to do. There's nothing, there's no more growth you need to do. It's just sitting with God. Right. It's just the pleasure of sitting with God. And that's what I mean by this. During the week, you have time and you do. And even when you're doing, you can also be with God, but especially on Shabbat. So this is what I'm trying to capture here: is that you're sitting this way just because you're already with God. You're already the Buddha in some way, and that's just how the, the Buddha sits. Um, great. So um, a, a couple of insights that I had, you know, recently is that when we live our lives and we we uh, are, you know, we, we always talk about the selflessness of consciousness, that there is no separate self. And I think this helps to unlock something for me that I notice it helps me unlock is when I try to take responsibility. For other people, I notice I have like an imagined storyline about how crummy their lives are, how much they're suffering. But in reality, there is no 
separate self. And more than that, whatever story you're telling yourself about somebody else's life experiences is a total fiction. It's a totally imagined thing. And the only place you can operate from is your own consciousness. So stop trying to take all the problems of the world upon your shoulders and somehow solve them by being responsible for other people's problems. And instead realize not only is it unwise, it doesn't even make sense to do that because there are no absolutely separate individuals as you perceive them to be. So what do I mean by this? I think within Christianity, we were talking about this the other day, there's a tremendous guilt complex that arises from the story of Jesus, that Jesus was crucified, he died for our sins, and in the back of your mind, you're feeling guilty, like, oh, I feel bad because of my sins, and also, I I should be like that. I should be self-effacing just like him. And there's this tremendous guilt complex that's built up about the suffering of the world, which does exist. But I think the cure for that is Zen. The cure for that is all the, the Buddhist and Eastern stuff that we discuss, because it's trying to tell you, stop telling yourself this narrative, because this narrative assumes separate lifetimes and separate individuals and these people who are suffering in this way and, and all of that. And really what Buddhism is saying is come back to this moment right now. Come back to here. Stop trying to square it all away by projecting your notion of human justice onto God. And instead, just be present with your firsthand experience. So I wrote down here, you do not need to suffer for others, nor must you take on their problems as you conceive of them, because they don't even exist absolutely as such. And this is part of the Diamond Sutra, the diamond that cuts through illusion, one of the Buddhist sutras telling us that because there is no separate self, it doesn't make sense to think of people's separate lifetimes as actual entities. And therefore, there is no one else to take responsibility for but this firsthand experience of yours. I hope I could get that across in a in a good way, but it's obviously hard to put into words. Um, the other stuff we, we can talk about at a different time. I wrote down here, the virtues of the fool. Um, that's something well, I'll save for next week, hopefully, but a lot of good stuff coming for that. But without further ado, let's look at some Zohar. Okay, we got. Uh, we'll, we'll finish off a nice section here of the Zohar. Uh, first off, any any questions about anything we discussed so far? Any comments? Perfect. All right, we can we can jump right in. So we left off in the Zohar last time. We were talking about the uh, Arab uh, caravaner uh, driver of the two rabbis, right? Rabbi Abba and Rabbi Al Azar. Rabbi Al Azar, the son of Rabbi Shimon Bar Yochai. And they were being taken by this 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 guy who they thought was just some Arab guy, and they he, they discover he has this tremendous wisdom, and he's making this derasha about Ben Yahu Ben Yehoyada. And we left off last time um, that part of these pesukim that he's quoting from Shemuel, he also quotes one from Mishle uh, about Eshet Chayil, that her household is clothed in crimson, right? That sometimes judgment and the more masculine Elements of the sefirot are going to cut off um, any type of grace from from the divine. But what happens? Why is she not afraid? Because Shekhinah has an affinity with Givudah and Din, symbolized by the color red, and she executes the decrees of judgment, so she does not fear judgments, fire or snow. Meaning what? Meaning 
that Shekhinah is the solution to the judgmentalism of the ego. This is what we said last time. The judgmentalism of the ego is trying to constantly say, we have no capability of being good, we're hopeless, we're helpless, we're evil. Sometimes it even tells people, you you don't even deserve to live because of how evil you are. But what is it that carries the ego through those very strict, harsh, divine judgments, if you will? That's Shekhinah. Shekhinah is this feminine element, but it also can act as a masculine element. It's almost hermaphroditic when it's accepting the upper uh, emanations, it's feminine. But then when it's pouring it out to the physical world, it's more masculine. But it is just presence. It's just mindfulness. So in a way, the key towards surviving these harsh judgments of the mind is pure mindfulness. Just coming back to the moment. And I love that I can see that here in the Zohar. So let's continue this derasha. Until here, mystery of the verse. Uh, what is written next? He slew an Egyptian, a man of good appearance. Here the mystery of the verse discloses that whenever Israel sinned, he departed, withholding from them all goodness, all the light illumining them. So this is the next part of this pasuk about Benayal ben Yada, that he slew an Egyptian man, a man of good appearance. And the, the Zohar is going to say, who was, first of all, who was this Egyptian man? They're going to say it's Moshe Rabbeinu. Because we talk, and obviously this is not Peshat, but this is part of the Derasha. Because Moshe is described in the, the parasha we just read as Ish Mitzri Hitzilano Miyada Haro'im. An Egyptian man. He is the quintessential Egyptian man in a way. Um, so, who, so now here we say, here the mystery of the verse discloses that whenever Israel sinned, he departed. So it's saying... According to this, Yesod, the, the one of the, the divine phallus of the Tzifirot, departs whenever Israel sins, which is interesting because sin is very often associated with temptation and a phallic image. But whenever Israel sins, the, the, the Yesod departs, withholding from them all goodness. Right now, the emanation of God's flow cannot flow. What does it mean? He slew an Egyptian man. The light of that light illumining Israel. Who is it? Moshe. Moshe, as is written, they said an Egyptian man rescued us. So it's saying, um, Moshe was, let's see, uh, there he was born, there he was raised, there he rose to the highest light. In Egypt, Moshe had all these things accomplished for him. Okay. A man of mar'eh, good appearance, as is said, umar'eh, very interesting. So what does it mean that he slew an Egyptian man of good appearance? Moshe is this Egyptian man of good appearance. Why? Not his physical appearance per se, but we hear later on in the Torah, Moshe has a certain exceptionalism as a prophet. And to me, this is extremely moving in light of all that we've been discussing. What made Moshe Rabbeinu so special? His mirror was perfectly polished. The Hachamim compare Moshe to the lens of, to a lens really, that has no nooks and crannies, that is so perfectly polished that when the light shines through that lens, it is perfectly transmitted in its purity, that light. As opposed to every other Navi, who when they transmitted their prophecy, they had a little bit of their personality skewing the light here and there, not Moshe. 
How do we know? Because the Pasuk says after Miriam and Aharon were speaking about Moshe marrying Isha Kushit, where Moshe married a, an Ethiopian woman, they started talking about him and God gets involved. And God said, reprimands Miriam and Aharon. He says, How could you have been so impetuous? How could you not have not feared to speak about my servant Moses in such a way? And he's and God goes on to say, uh, um, Adonai If you were gonna have an Avi, I'll speak to him in a vision or in a dream. It won't be clear. But when I speak to Moshe Rabenu, This is all in the Torah. Not so is my servant Moses. He is welcome in my entire household. I speak to him face to face, mouth to mouth, and in a clear vision and not in riddles. So that's what this word mar'eh is the same as the word mar'eh in the pasuk about Benayahu slaying the Egyptian man of good appearance. That's talking about Moshe because it's the same word. The man who can see things in their true appearance. So men, as it said, men of Elohim, this is very interesting. Why is, why is Moshe called the Egyptian man per se? Very interestingly, Moshe is at the end of his life in the last pedic of the whole Torah, right? It calls Moshe Ish Ha Elohim, the, the man of God. But Ish doesn't only mean man, it also means husband. So, husband, as it were, of that Mare appearance of the presence of Yotkevavke. For he was worthy of conducting this rung on earth in any way he wished, something no other human attained. What is the Zohar saying now? The Zohar is saying that Moshe, in a way, right, because Shekhinah is the Mar'eh, Shekhinah is the appearance of the presence of God. It's the lowest of all the sefirot that manifests the divine personality. The sight of divine manifestation, she's also known as Elohim. Moshe is on such an intimate terms with Shekhinah that he is called Shekhinah's husband, as indicated by his title, Ish HaElohim, the husband of the divine, the husband of Shekhinah. According to rabbinic tradition, after encountering God on Mount Sinai, Moses abstained from sexual contact with his wife and maintained union with Shekhinah. You know, make of that as, as you will. But Moshe being married to God, or this part of God in a way, I think speaks volumes. I, I don't even want to say more about that because I don't think I could even, you know, possibly comprehend or put that into words. But Moshe was on a level, needless to say, that we can only imagine what that level of intimacy was like. The Pasuk continues. The Egyptian had a spear in his hand. This is the staff of God handed down to him, right? So the Egyptian, now we, we know is Moshe, but we're reading these, this back into the Pesukim from Shemuel. He had a staff in his hand. It was handed down to him according to this tradition. It was handed down to Moshe from before, even before Paral, right? So it was already in the possession of Adam Arishon to Hanoch, to Noah, to Shem, to Abraham, Yitzhak, Yaakov, Yosef, Yitro, and then to Moshe. So it's a, a midrash about the importance of this staff, that this staff is something extra special. Why? As is said, with the staff of God in my hands, this is the staff created on the eve of Shabbat at twilight, right? So there, there's a lot of Midrashim about 
those things that are like extraordinary in reality, when were they created? On Erev Shabbat ben Hashmashot. Right as the week of creation of the primordial creation of the six days of Genesis was ending, as Shabbat was beginning, God created certain things that were extraordinary. One of them being the staff of Moses. Um, one of the ten things, right? There's ten things created at that at that time, according to this midrash, according to Masechet Avot. So it was engraved with the holy name Yod Kevavke of God. With this, he sinned at the rock, as is said. He struck the rock with his staff twice. The blessed holy one, Hakadosh Baruch Hu, said, "Moshe, I did not give you my staff for this. By your life, Hayecha, meaning I swear, from now on, it will no longer be in your hand." Immediately, he went down to him with a club, with severe judgment. And he wrenched the spear out of the Egyptian's hand. This is part of the Pasukim Shemuel. For, for from that moment, it was withheld from him and was never again in his hand. Right. So after Moshe's sin by the Memeriva, he never again held that staff. Right. And the verse continues in Shemuel. He, uh, and wrenched the spear out of the Egyptian's hand and killed him with his own spear. As the donkey driver interprets the verse, the subject, Ben Ayahu, is really Yesod. So the one who's doing the killing is Yesod, this masculine element of judgmentalism within the divine personality, is now confronting Moshe, the Egyptian, and Benayahu, the Yesod, is killing Moshe. Yani, Moshe is never going to be able to go into the promised land. He's going to die as a result of this sin. And now listen to this. The notion that Moses was an Egyptian who was killed by an Israelite foreshadows Freud's thesis in his book, about Moses. Um, so I think that's just an interesting side point. But this idea of Moshe being this like Egyptian uh, type of figure who now is not getting this staff for the rest of his life because of whatever he did wrong. Let's see what they, where they go with this. He died and did not enter the Holy Land. And this light was withheld from Israel. So as a result of whatever Moshe did at Memeriva, he was not able to go the full length into the Promised Land. From the 30, he was most honored. It continues about Benayah ben Yoyada. He was the most honored of these 30. What is the 30? These are the 30 celestial years on which he drew, conveying them below. Drawing on them, he drew near, but the three he did not attain. Okay, so this is pretty strange stuff, but it, it kind of makes sense when you look at the commentary. So these 30 celestial years actually represent the Sefirot of Chesed, Gevurah, and Tiferet. Each one of them, each of those three Sefirot, can actually manifest all 10 of the sefirot. So each one in itself is like 10. So they're saying that's why in this pasuk, it's talking about 30. He was the best of the 30. So it's saying Yesod is actually the best of those three. Best out of Chesed, Givorah, and Tiferet. The phallus kind of comes out from them. The highest triad of sefirot, right? The, 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 the higher triad now is trying to approach Yesod. So Keter, Chokmah, and Bina, the upper three Sefirot, are trying to now contact Yesod because they see that he is the best of the lower Sefirot. What does this mean? Still, uh, although he was not counted as one of them, David set him over his bodyguard, for he never faded from the tablet of his heart. They are never separated. So David here represents Shekhinah, according to this commentary. And David set Yesod, right? So Shekhinah and Yesod are the, the feminine and masculine elements at the very bottom of the Sefirot. And they're never separating, according to this. 
David said him close, not conversely, uh, for with the praises, songs, and love that the moon offers to the sun, she draws him toward her so that he dwells with dwell with her. This is David set him over his bodyguard. It's trying to interpret the Pasuk in a certain way. Of what does this mean that Benayahu became one of the bodyguards of David? Really, it means that Shekhinah and Yesod are fully consorting right now. Um, and I think it's a beautiful image of just like the sun and the moon are, you know, <laughs> partnering. So too, Shekhinah and her partner Yesod are partnering. Interesting stuff. Let's see how this ends. Now, I like this part. Rabbi Al-Azad and Rabbi Abba fell before him. Right. So that was the end of the entire speech given by this taya'a, by this Arab caravaner. So now Rabbi Al-Azad and Rabbi Abba just heard this whole long Divrei Torah, and they can't believe what they just heard, and they fall down on the ground before him. Meanwhile... They didn't, and by the way, it's interesting that that this this whole thing ended with what, and that's how sex happens, and that's how Yesod and Shekhinah get together, and it it keeps coming back to this, but it's all about that communion, the the merging of the masculine and the feminine, the yin the yin and the yang, going back wow. out of dualism into the non dual, into that plane where it's all one. And that's how this guy's very long derasha <laughs> is ending. So to be able to be wow. totally flabbergasted. Meanwhile, they did not see him. They rose looking in every direction but could not see him. The taya'a disappeared. They sat down and wept and could not speak to one another. After a while, to be Abbas said, this is precisely what we learned. On whatever path the righteous walk, with words of Torah between them, Virtuous ones of that world come to them. This was indeed Rav Hamnunasava coming to us from that world to reveal these words to us. Before we could recognize him, he vanished. Right? So we know about other stories where well, we know when, when uh, according to the Bihananya Bint Radion, if two people are engaged in sitting and sitting and learning Torah, the Shekhinah dwells between them. But here the seekers are not walking, or they are walking, not sitting, and they're visited not by the Shekhinah, but rather by a righteous soul who's reincarnated and comes to puzzle and enlighten them. And we know earlier in the story that this guy said he is the son of a Nuna of fish, which sounded like Rabha Minuna Sava. And really they realized, oh, this was Rabha Minuna reincarnated as some lowly donkey driver with this goal of both confusing us, but at the same time enlightening us. Uh, and he used this whole story about Ben Ayahu Ben Yehoyada in order to describe that. Interestingly, what's going on here? Why is it Ben Ayahu Ben Yehoyada Ben Ishai? He's the son of a living man. It's describing Ben Ayahu that way because Ben Ayahu is um, living even in death, according to this. And interestingly enough, Rav Hamunah himself comes back to life in a way through this derasha. So there's certain derashot that are so incredible, that are so power-packed, that it's almost like it can bring the dead back to life. And you can now be a Ben Ishai when you have that. And finally, the Zohar ends this section. They rose and tried to goad the donkeys, but they would not move. Right? So they couldn't even move the donkeys out of that place. They tried to goad them, but, but they would not move. Frightened, they left the donkeys behind. Still today, that spot is called donkey's sight and that's how it ends so i think yeah i do 
I have something here on. I have a book that's a Zohar selection. It's translated uh, by uh, Moshe Miller. So mm. on the Yisor, it has a beautiful thing. It said, Yisor is the quality which coalesces all the qualities which precede it into a single creative act, binding the giver and the recipient into a single unit. In technical terms, Yisor binds the highest sefirot to Malchut or heaven to earth. In the soul, this represents a person's ability to bind himself to God's will and thus bring about the implementation of God's plan for creation. Yisod also represents the Sadiq, regarding whom it is said, the Sadiq is the foundation or the Yisod of the world. Sadiq for is it is he who dedicates himself to fulfilling God's will and actualizing his plan for creation. Mm. ID, what would I do without you? Honestly, that was so perfect. <laughs> I couldn't have planned that much better. He, but no, that's that, exactly it, it, that's exactly what it is. Yeah, crazy. That, no, I didn't. I didn't make it up. The guy wrote it. I'm anyway, <laughs> it, 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 it's it's amazing because we always talk about Shekhinah, Shekhinah. That Shekhinah is the divine presence and it's with us. Right. But the Yesod is like the masculine element, and yeah, it's that's like, what, to come full We were talking about Hanuman earlier, and this 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 monkey part of us. That's what the phallus represents. It represents that monkey part of us, that part of us that's yearning to to accomplish and to do and so, to to make inroads in the world in some way, but it can get right. it can get seduced very easily by all the pleasures of the world. But that's why right. it's sadiq. The sadiq is Yesod Olam, and it's represented by Yosef as sadiq because he does not succumb to the temptation with Eshet Potiphar. But the point being, when you turn that and that sexual energy even and you turn it into prana or you turn it into your yetzer hatov you know it's, or uh, you know your yetzer hara being something that can drive you to succeed in business or accomplish good things and make the world a better place in some way not mm -hmm. a, a, a neurotic way but in a way where you're partnering with god i think that's exactly what you're saying you can have really beautiful things and, and that's the road to being a sadiq in a way um, I think you know this is not lost on me. The amazingness of they they were totally dumbfounded by the end of this, and they not only did the Arab caravaner disappeared, the donkeys wouldn't move. I think it's trying to tell you this was something else. This was some kind of mystical experience. Right. Well, it's CBGB, yeah, CBGB, exactly. And and but, but Mikey, in the, in this section here, where it has powers of the soul, you know, Gevuratif and this hard. Uh, so it's is yeah. it chronological or it's cherry pick? So you're saying the the order of emanations from it within? Yeah, in other words, do you have to climb that ladder, or you could you could take any route? I I you know I I think as far as I know, there are different ways of of climbing that ladder and different combinations. Ah, okay, stuff. fine. I'm definitely not the expert here, but apparently each unique combination is very very. Uh, you know, beautiful in its way of of connecting you to the end self, to the to the infinity that is yeah, God. Yeah, no, the Zohar has an amazing way of putting together. Even though yeah. it's TBGB and maybe very esoteric, it's so logical and beautiful. Like when I read it and read it and read it, every time I read it, the different you know translations and books that I have, it blows my mind because I, I I leave with another. Like there's a beautiful thing on Bina. It says the depth of Bina. The aspect of Bina, which expresses the relationship 
to a source in Chokmah. This blew me away. So the depth of Binah derives from Chokmah. Chokmah and Binah together are called the two beloved friends that never part. Mm. Which is like which is a, wow. like a nice thing. So you can see it's like it's all interconnected, these these EBGB ladder, you know. Yes. Right. Baruch Hashem, right. there's so much to learn. And these things have such a deep meaning, I think, for all of us. And when you meditate on it legitimately, and I was doing it the other day, and it meant so much to me to be able to climb these these rungs, and uh, you know, and whatever that meant in that meditation for me, I, it's ineffable. And I, I bless you all right. that, you that experience. Mezrat Hashem, guys, great, I love you great. all. Dynamite, right? Thanks yeah, a lot. Thank- love you, Alamak. Good night, thank guys. You. It was a beautiful night. Yeah, guys, thank be you. Have a great weekend. Oh, I, thank you so Bye. much for joining, Doctor Nasser. Thank you, man. Good night, thanks for that.